when Raish enters the DeSalvers apartment. Yes. He was really ch- channeling Eddie Haskell. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> oh, you're going to have to explain who Eddie Haskell is, I think. Too. I, I probably am. Okay, so Many Eddie members Haskell of our audience. was uh, Wally Cleaver, Beaver Cleaver's big brother's best friend. And Eddie was pretty sleazy. Welcome to season three of Star's End, a podcast dedicated to Isaac Asimov's classic sci-fi series, Foundation. We are reading Asimov's fiction this season, but we'll keep you informed on show news for Apple TV's season two. While we all wait for that, the three of us will be here with our own inimitable take on Asimov's universe. Please join us. You'll be glad you did. Welcome to episode seven of season three of the Star Set podcast. Uh, this week, we're going to follow Harry and Doors around in Dahl and Billabotten a little bit more and reach the end of their time in Billabotten and just about get them to where they're going to head to the next section of Trantor. Uh, this week, we do not have any updates on the TV show, unfortunately, still waiting for some sort of an announcement as to uh, a date. Still hoping for the third or fourth quarter of this year. I fear that they might delay it until the first quarter of next year, but I hope not. And what else have we got? I've got COVID. Dan's got COVID. But you know what? I am taking a COVID positive attitude toward this. So COVID positive. Very nice. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm uh, just drinking a lot uh, of, of liquids, enjoying life, blowing off work. And uh keeping quarantined and not giving it to anyone else so well, that's good that's thank, very responsible thank, of you yeah thankfully my triple vaccines have kicked in and it's nice. not too bad for me so should we make the usual jokes about how covid can spread through zoom calls that the, the latest variant can... <laughs> uh, that's nicer than the joke that i was going to trot out <laughs> okay. dan doesn't look any more sickly than he normally does nice, nice. i yeah. like that one that one was well better. that's true i i am i am a, a, a weakling akin to the mule but without any of the mental powers Nice, nice. It's well, us, those of us in academia. Right. And for anyone who doesn't know that, the three of us are not in the same place when we record these podcasts. Dan is in Canada. Joseph is in New York State. I'm in Connecticut. We are separated by far enough that COVID cannot, in fact, spread through our Zoom call. So mm. that's good. And, you know, a shout out to Joel at Selden Crisis, who also has COVID. Uh, and I, I, I think from carefully communicating him through Twitter, where I also think you can't catch COVID, I think. Um, I think he's got it a little bit worse than you do. Dan, I think he's- yeah, so our, uh, but hopefully we're all hoping Joel will be fine and uh, our thoughts are going out to him. So everyone else, uh, show Joel some love, send him a nice message and let's yeah. hope he gets better soon. 
and listen to his Please. podcast. That that yeah, absolutely. Everyone listen, who listen. listens to his podcast makes him feel better just, just that much. Well, the other thing that we have is that that uh, I have written a Doors of Anabali origin story. It's two thousand words long, um, nice and crisp, very snappy. It tries to tie together everything we know about Doors, everything we know about Daniil, and uh, through through the Asimov books even a, a few uh, little hooks into the TV show. I've tried to, to give Doors a real, uh, a real origin story. And uh, as I was saying to the guys before, as far as I'm concerned, this story is now canon. It is official. So if you want to know the actual truth of how Doors of Navali came about, read my story. We're going to put it up on the website. And uh, feedback is welcome as long as it's positive. Just like Dan is COVID positive. I'm feeling positive. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, I'll just give you a plug for your for your story, John, that, you know, um, as I mentioned to you just before we hit record, uh, it, it sounds a lot like Asimov's voice. So uh, those of you who wish that Asimov had written just one more story, you know, <laughs> check check out John's because he, he does a pretty good job of channeling the way Asimov sounds. Well, thank you. Thank you very nice. much. I, I did do that at least a little bit on purpose. So uh, without trying to be overbearing about it. So let's talk about actual writing by Isaac Asimov as we continue in, in uh, Prelude to Foundation. We have two sections that we're covering today. The first one is called Undercover. And in the story, Harry and Doors, after their adventures in Billabotten with knife fighting and such, are back at the Tisalver's apartment and Rach shows up, much to the dismay of Mrs. Tisalver, Mistress Tisalver, who does not want any of these low-class billabotners filthing up her apartment. And um, Harry and, and Doris have to make a big deal about, we've rented these rooms and any visitors who come here are our visitors and you'll, you'll let them come in. Rach comes in and tells them that someone wants to see them in Billabotten. And they go with Rach and he takes them to see a new character called Davin, who is more or less the leader of a resistance movement within Dahl, who is very interested in things like equality for the Dahlites. Um, he's very impressed that Harry has been uh, so good to, uh, to Rach and to Hugo Amaril, that Harry told Hugo that there's no reason why he, he shouldn't be considered equal to everyone else on Tranta or every other human being. And David wants Harry to help the resistance. He wants him to use psychohistory to help the resistance. And once again, Harry says, I don't have anything that I can use to help the resistance. But he does say at one point that he's getting closer. He's making some progress. He's beginning to see some kind of an outline of how he might get to a working version of psychohistory. So that advances the story of psychohistory a little bit. Rach brings them back to the Tisalver's apartment. Oh, I, I guess I left out the, there was the one part where they're on the way to see Davin. They are accosted by someone who claims to be a reporter who wants to do a story about them. And Harry and Doors really do not want to talk to him. And they suspect, or Rach tells them that he suspects that the reporter is actually an imperial agent trying to get some dirt on them or trying to get a pretext for them to get arrested. And by now, because of Doors' incredible fighting prowess, they're sort of heroes in Dahl, that, you know, that they really respect Doors' knife-wielding abilities. 
and uh, and the crowd is going to set upon the the reporter. Although Harry and Doris tell them to leave him alone and let him go, and then they go on to see David. Uh, they come back, and um, the next morning, uh, two officers arrive from local law enforcement, and they are going to arrest Harry and Doors. And it turns out, of course, that Mistress Tisalver is the one who sort of turned them in. Um, it doesn't help them that Doors has this big knife belt with two knives because knives are illegal in Dahl, even though everyone has them. Uh, they're not really legal. Uh, they just keep, everything they say to these officers just keeps getting them into more and more hot water until finally Rach actually arrives, bursts into the room. There's a confrontation. One of the officers uses his neuronic whip on Rach, which is very painful. Harry picks up Rach, doors, knocks out the two officers, and they go basically on the lam. Rach takes them down into the sewers where he thinks they can hide, but Harry's pretty skeptical that they'll be able to hide, that he thinks that now that they've attacked two law enforcement officers, the whole law enforcement apparatus is going to come down on them. They're worried. They don't know what to do. And suddenly who shows up but David? who has tracked them down using some sort of heat sensitive device that can tell human beings at 37 degrees centigrade body temperature. And so he found them um, and he can detect that someone else is coming. And Harry believes that it's Cheddar Hummin. He says, oh, of course you called your friend. He, he, he gets Doris to admit that she sent a message to Cheddar. Um, that, that David has claimed to have friends in high places who can be called on at a moment's notice to do a great thing to help to help enormously. And Harry's sure that it's Cheddar Hummin. And of course, into the room walks, not Cheddar Hummin, someone else, to the great surprise of Harry. Doris was not as surprised. She didn't think it was going to be Cheddar. So Asimov turns uh, the DSX Cheddar Hummin on its, on its head a little bit because he certainly gave us the impression it was going to be cheddar. It would have matched the same pattern as what we saw in mycogen, but it actually turns out not to be cheddar. And so uh, we're going to find out in the next section who it was. And that is the story. One of the things that I thought was actually kind of interesting, and I, I'm not sure what to make of it, is that after all of Harry's flirting with doors and in the scene where they go down into the heat sinks and everybody's naked from the waist up, including the women, and Doris doesn't take off her bra, and Harry's sort of like, oh, I wouldn't mind if you did. In the scene before the officers arrive, Harry walks into Doris's room, and there she is naked from the waist up. And she doesn't think it's a big deal, and he's so embarrassed that he can't even look at her. So after all of that like drooling and, and, and wanting to see her naked, when he finally does, he he's too ashamed to even look at her. And I thought it could be that that's a little bit of a variation of the hand on thigh story, where it was just in a circumstance where he just got embarrassed about it, you know, that it was sort of accidental. It wasn't sexual at all. And and therefore he was completely embarrassed about it and, and averts his eyes. So I, I, I guess that's the story. What did you guys think of this particular adventure in doll for for me the uh the centerpiece of this is the is the dialogue with raven uh, david you know this discussion of um how does one create a successful revolutionary movement and there's no there's no answers um but 
you know, it, it's, it gives a new twist on the way in which the development of psychohistory has been presented so far. And, you know, so far, like everyone who wants Harry to come up with a fortune telling method has been concerned with, you know, the stability of the empire and, um, you know, which faction is going to be in charge. And we're going to get more of that before the novel ends. But this is the first time in which this has actually been tied to concerns over social justice and equal distribution. And, you know, we know Asimov's politics skew clearly to the left. And, uh, you know, I, I can't help but think that this encounter was kind of important to him. And there are no, you know, it's not exactly on the cutting edge of actual political theory uh, or, you know, uh, but there is um, something to it, which I feel is willing to tolerate complexity in that no, no easy answers are offered. Right. Right. And, and I appreciated that. Yeah. And I do think that there's sort of the beginnings of a psychohistorical analysis to it. Yeah. You know, where they talk about, does anyone off Trent or care? And what is, what is the position of a revolutionary group when the government controls such overwhelming force, which is the case on Trantor? And, you know, they talk about having help from a, a powerful figure like the mayor of Y. And that the conclusion there is that whatever you do there, it's not going to work out well, either the powerful figure will decide they no longer need you and betray you. Or you can preempt that by betraying the powerful figure, but neither of those works very well for a revolutionary movement. Like the first one obviously leads to the complete failure of the revolution where the powerful figure backstabs the revolution and, and throws it away. And the other one where the revolution goes into the relationship planning to betray them. I mean, Harry says something like, you know, that's not the great basis for a social justice movement is that you're planning on betraying your benefactor. Yeah, it's definitely not going to make for a an easy alliance, right? If you no. know, if you know going in that it's that it's that your partner is untrustworthy. Yeah, but even prior to that, you have a long dissertation from Doors about how most revolutions just lead to a different and possibly worse worse sort of tyranny. Yeah, right. So it all it all kinds of adds up to a, a sort of a psychohistorical, a proto psychohistorical analysis. And, you know, one thing I also liked about this is, is the fact that this kind of model of repression, you know, it, it comes, it's based in the fact that Dalites are heat sinkers, right? And which is essentially, it's, you know, a resource economy, which I don't, I don't think, you know, back in the 80s, we had the term petro states uh, or... Oh, sure, we did because of the... Did we? Yeah, the it, Middle East. Uh, oh yeah, I, I think, OPEC was um, all right. over the late seventies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the concept was there, uh, and they if, also had the, the uh, for if the term. Uh, if the term was there, the, that's fine. I'm pretty I, sure I, it was. But okay. there's also the, the the conception of a of a um, I can't remember what you call it a hollowed out state that's based purely on a single commodity. Yeah, it creates an enormous amount of wealth within the country, but the wealth is not distributed. 
Right. So, I mean, so obviously, yeah. So he had plenty of models um, yeah. that honestly, to me, I mean, I, I think that, you know, the kind of oil based uh, autocracies were are part of this. To me, David actually sounded a lot like a, you know, a 1930s United Mine Workers uh, kind of organizer too, you know, thinking about the way that, you know, miners in West Virginia or wherever were treated. But, but, um, you know, it, it's uh, it fits the model of of something that we're quite familiar with of of the energy based kind of autocracy and and repression and uh, you know I don't it it's it's hard to come up with easy ways of undoing that kind of uh, autocracy. I don't, I, maybe political scientists have, have some examples of successful reform movements that have created flourishing democracies out of oil states, but I don't know of any offhand. I don't think um, there are any. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, there's um, Texas. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, Texas. so that's not an example. Well, <laughs> okay. I mean, you, you can look at a country like Norway, which was already a democracy before oil wealth came about. And what has what they've done in in Norway is to create a sovereign wealth fund out of the proceeds, yeah, uh, and not allowed that single industry to become dominant. But Norway was already a liberal democracy before the kind of explosion of wealth that energy created for them. So I think it's not a good example. Yeah, and I mean I'm I'm dialing in from Alberta, Canada, where we have the oil sands. But, you know, um, there, there are some undemocratic features to our provincial politics, but, um, you know, Canada starts from a, a fairly democratic base as well. And I mean, Australia is very similar analog to Canada, both very much resource-driven countries. And, you know, we can go on and on about what that means for them. And it, and it has had a lot of meaning for them economically. But yeah, both countries kind of starting out democratic and then becoming these resource-based economies. Yeah, so in in the novel, I, I was just kind of impressed by how close to home this kind of hits and uh, the airing of difficulties and willingness to, to tolerate ambiguity and uh, lack of solutions. So it's, it's a little depressing, but... <laughs> Um, you know, I mean, there's in this, in the foundation sequence, we, there's plenty of other depressing things that come up if you are willing to think about them just a little bit. Well, we haven't even started reading forward the foundation yet. So yeah. <laughs> speaking of depressing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and if, uh, yeah, and if you want the, the, uh, the example of the energy-based economy, uh, you know, you've, you've got why sitting right there, which is at, the, at this stage, the other end of the mm. um, energy consumption um, the energy consumption loop or whatever, whatever you want to call it, but it would be entirely, you know, I mean, and they discuss uh, why being more powerful than doll because it's harder to get rid of all that heat than, um, than it is to generate the energy. Yeah. They're, they're the, uh, they're the radiator. They're the radiator. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Although I've got to, I've, I've got to say again, this seems like I'm going to cycle back to, to thermoelectric power because you would have this perfect setup with why the way they've described it as being the other end of the thermoelectric generator. Heat the one end in the heat sink, heat, cool the other end at the at the poles, and you get electricity. 
and that would give you a natural synergy between the two sectors that isn't necessarily mm. there. Interesting. Yeah, I have so you to, want you want Arthur C. Clarke to come along and kind of edit this part of the <laughs> of the story and do a better job of describing the the energy uh, dynamic. Maybe yes. You know this this reminds me of this talk that Dan that you've you've brought up about the situation with the revolution. I, I I got into a discussion with somebody on Twitter about, and it was a little bit lighthearted, even though it's not a lighthearted topic about looking at the situation in Ukraine from yeah. a sort of a psychohistorical. You have like mm. the temptation to sort of apply it. And I'll tell you why. For example, you know, one of the things that I, I believe is that for an autocrat, it is very, very difficult to have a very efficient and usable military for a couple of reasons. One reason is an autocrat doesn't want a good military. An autocrat wants a small Praetorian guard that keeps them safe and the rest of the military to be there, but not to be too strong because they tend to turn inward. And so you don't want a military that's going to turn inward. And of course, as we know, the Russian military has been exposed here in, in Ukraine. It's not being very strong. The other reason, which we're also seeing in Ukraine, is corruption. That Putin put out a, a very uh, uh, ambitious program of updating the military, spent an awful lot of money. And you look at what's going on there and you kind of wonder, well, where's the money? And you know, there's all these yachts floating around mm. in the world. You kind of feel like that's where the money went. And that in addition to that, the international situation you know, is that it's very, very difficult for Europe in particular and the United States to tolerate this kind of military adventurism and that all of these economic forces are coming to bear against the Russians. You kind of look at it and go, you know, could there have been a, should Putin have been doing psychohistory here and trying to, and, and figuring out that this just was not going to work? Yeah, you know, I, I kind of feel like you know, as, as just an obsessed armchair reader of uh, news on, on the whole crisis, um, it seems like he's a bad psychohistorian. Like, a, apparently, I haven't read it, but people say he last summer he put out this grand historical manifesto of his own about, you know, the the non-existence of Ukraine as a historical Not entity. Not just Ukraine, but the Baltic states. Right, yeah. yeah. But, you know, I like... I, I think it's it's a probably a, a warning sign when any uh, autocrat starts thinking in of himself as a historian, mm. um, right? Mm. And you know, he, uh, apparently he's a fan of like these kind of crackpot Russian uh, theories of history, like something called passionarity. Who knows what this is all about? But um, you know, it's like. You can, I can totally see this kind of movement through the lens of Asimov and and psychohistory. Like it's not, it's not a good advertisement for Asimov's thesis that there is a psychohistory that could have predicted, you know, the course of history. I don't. I, I think it's pretty obvious that Putin, as an individual, had a decisive role in pushing this. And that's not something that's that would have happened necessarily with someone else in place. So the the notion of the turning points of history and grand historical forces at work, clearly Ukraine seems like it's going to be a completely different nation uh, at the end of this. The Western Europe, you know, the U.S. 
relations with Europe will all be changed, the stance of NATO, the, you know, China's plan. I mean, like this is a kind of world altering event in many ways that mm-hmm. we're seeing unfold before us. So it's, it's reading Asimov as we've been this whole time and then, you know, seeing something like this unfold, it's, it's hard not to draw some connections, even if it's, it's definitely not, oh, Asimov explained all this. No, and it's also much easier. <laughs> yeah. it's, and of course, we're not all the way through this thing. Obviously, yeah. We're right in the middle of the crisis. Right. Yeah. But it's a lot easier to look back and say, oh, yes, I see that the Russian military is doing a poor job. And of course they are, because here's my theory for why they should be. But it's a lot easier to say that when you've already seen it than it would have been to predict it in advance. Like, was I out here saying, well, of course, the Russian military is going to do a terrible job because of such and such reasons? Well, no, this is more of a post hoc explanation saying, aha, now I see why that that's happened. Yeah, but I think if we want to talk about why Putin is as adventurous as it as he is, even if he knew that his um, military was as, you know, disorganized and as ineffectual as it is, He's got a card that no one wants him to play that I don't think he's all that reluctant to play. And I hope it does not come to that. But yeah, we could be staring down something very, very dark. Right. I mean, he certainly wants you to believe that he will use nuclear weapons. I think he's much more likely to use chemical or even biological weapons. I think it's very likely that he will, the more frustrated he gets. I don't know whether there's any kind of restraint on him using nuclear weapons. We, we like to think there is, but I don't know if there is or not. But that's, that's of course, a, a huge factor in this is that he believes he can act with impunity because he has that card to play if he wants mm-hmm. to. And, 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 who, and who would risk that is, is probably his thinking. Right. So, I mean, you know, as I was saying to Dan before we started recording, you know, more than almost anything I've ever seen any geopolitical event, this does seem to be one person's personal project more than anything. I mean, it, it, supposedly he didn't even really tell the, the generals that he was actually going to invade until a couple of days before. But maybe we should be talking about that some more. I don't know. <laughs> it's hard not to talk about this stuff. It's, it's so at the forefront of, of my mind. And as much as I've, you know, I, I turned my Twitter feed into a lot more kind of Star Trek and science fiction than, than reporting in politics on purpose in order to get less of what was going on in the Trump years. And these days, it's just like all Ukraine all the time. And, you know, a little dose of Clarence Thomas, you know, <laughs> and, his, and his wife, which we don't need to talk about that. Yeah, but Dan, we, 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 we've talked many times about the unfeasibility of, of psychohistory. But if we're to look at Ukraine, I'm sure that there are a lot of short-term metrics, and I don't know what any of them are. I'm sure there are a lot of short-term metrics that probably could have given us some pretty good insight. I'm sure in subsequent years, there will be dozens and dozens of scholarly books written or not so scholarly books written. Every reporter in the world is going to write their book about Ukraine and what Putin was really thinking and what really happened and what we should have done differently. And I'm sure we have that to look forward to. So we don't actually have to read any of those books. <laughs> no, it was all it was all Oswald. Oswald started the whole it thing. Was all Oswald. <laughs> He's actually a reptilian alien. So. <laughs> I don't you think joke. I've ever you I don't joke. think I've ever written I don't think I've ever read anyone who said that Oswald is a reptilian. I think it's a, it's a huge missed opportunity if no one's ever done it. Yeah, we should plant our flag on that as well as your 
door my, story. My door story. I, I think <laughs> I think for now I'm 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 storied out. I think someone else is gonna have to write the Oswald as a reptilian alien story. Well, it's not a story. We gotta be all we gotta be all in on this. The documentary. That's right. That's right. <laughs> the, the, the CIA, the Russians, the Cubans as ah, the reptilian aliens. Who's the reptilians? Of course. So obvious. So okay. I guess I'm now racking my brain trying to think of a way to get this back on topic. All right. Well, um, Let's let's loop back to the story because yes, one, one, yeah. one of my random observations is it when Raish enters the DeSalvers apartment. Yes, he was really ch- channeling Eddie Haskell. <laughs> my God! <laughs> now you're going to have to explain who Eddie Haskell is. I think I, I, I probably am. Okay, so Many Eddie Haskell was uh, Wally Cleaver, Beaver Cleaver's big brother's best friend, and Eddie was pretty sleazy not a, maybe not entirely a bad person but definitely pretty sleazy but when he was dealing with mrs cleaver he was sweet and polite and and complimentary it all i guess gets into the weaseliness of eddie haskell but rach reminded me rach reminded me of this because of the the, the complete 180 that he does when when the whether the the salvos are in or not in the room and this is from the 1950s tv show leave it to beaver which yes, none yes. of which none of us are old enough to have watched no, even and it, yes. its original air date <laughs> even no. the oldest of us are not old enough <laughs> to have watched that the but, other thing about about that about rage and his behavior is we get a, a great view inside rage's head about his budding sexual thoughts about doors <laughs> Everybody's got, and he wants Doris to give him a bath. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Among other things, quote, he had vague ideas of being paid money to do things he didn't know how to do now, but he didn't know what those things might be. He would have to be told. But how do you get to be, how do you get told? Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I mean, I guess he's what, 12, 13 years old. I mean, yeah. I guess that it's normal. Yeah. I think a you certain know, even- attraction to a woman like Doris. Like even, I think even before puberty, you know, kids kind of have sort of pre-sexual thoughts. I mean, they, they understand like there's something about romantic or sexual relationships that's there and that's interesting. Even when, before they're, they understand what's going on. I mean, Rach has this little internal conversation with himself that she doubts whether he even has a father and mentions that it has been explained to him in graphic detail how and why he must have a father and he, he's sort of like doesn't really believe it you know? yeah. he's kind of like yeah that, that doesn't sound right to me yeah he, he doesn't really believe it but he also finds it titillating I yes think he does the, titillating yes. is the word yes and while i do think that that's not hard to understand how someone of his age would be that way it's just like for asimov to include that here just it's just right on it's right on track for how Asimov is. <laughs> um, you get the feeling that Asimov wouldn't mind if Doris came and gave him a bath. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even though in the early descriptions, you know, she was not terribly attractive. She, she does. She is getting more and more attractive. Yeah, as mm. time goes by. Yeah. Kind of like Amaral's math got better and better and better as the story demanded. You know, I, I'm, I'm a huge consumer of things like The Three Musketeers by Alexander Dumas, which is, you know, it's, it's era's version of trashy novels. Mm-hmm. And um, 
the character of Porthos, one of the, the musketeers, starts out as a pretty large guy, big and strong. But by the end of all of the Three Musketeers novels, of which there are several, he is like a monster, a man mountain of incredible strength and size. And he just keeps growing and growing and growing throughout the series. See, that's interesting. I've never actually read it, but having watched Star Trek Enterprise, I just assumed he was a beagle. He was a beagle, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but what species of dog are the other are the other musketeers? Because if Porthos is a beagle, then the rest of them must be dogs as well. So well, I'll just leave that open. And and tinier. And tinier. <laughs> right, because Porthos has to be the big one. That's right. If Porthos is the big one. So let me ask you a question that I kind of came to the fore when I was reading these chapters this week. Why why have Rach at all? Hmm. This what what is this character doing? He's he's kind of this fun, you know, bit of additional, you know, color or atmosphere for for um, the doll sector and and Billy Button in particular, I guess. But like narratively, do we get anything from Rach that couldn't have been done without him? Well, this is just off the top of my head, but the end game of the book is Harry and Doors getting married breaches of an element in making them like a proto family hmm. okay quasi for, foreshadowing i don't know i mean that that could be completely dumb but right i think also that asimov well i don't know why he introduced the character of rage maybe he, it was just having fun maybe he wanted a sort of a dickensian urchin to appear <laughs> Because he thought that would be fun, but he is going to start to use Rach for a real reason. Rach is extremely likable. Mm -hmm. uh, everyone who meets Rach likes him. And we're going to see more of that in the future um, when they go to the next stop, that he just has a, people have a natural desire to like Rach. And that is going to develop, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, into the kind of mental powers that the second foundation needs to exist. Mm. Now, I just jumped over an enormous amount of story yeah. from here to there. I don't know whether Asimov intended that when he introduced Rach. Yeah. But that Rach is going to be the vehicle by which we get to the second foundation. He, he certainly does get more use, and especially in, if I remember correctly, in Forward the Foundation. Right. Well, that's where that element right. of the story so, is developed. Yeah, absolutely. Although I love the description of him as a Dickensian urchin. I'm, oh, absolutely. I, I'm imagining him now saying, please, sir, may I have some more knives? I mean, I, I already I already brought up Bleak House and the character of Joe, yeah. who to me is, you know, yeah. is a complete rage analogy. So uh, so again, I, I don't know, maybe Asimov just thought it'd be interesting to, to throw in a character like yeah. that. And, and, and it does feel a little bit like his use of rage later on is... Well, I have Rach here. He's a convenient yeah, character. Right. I can use him for various investigations that Harry wants to undertake. Yeah, yeah. And then I can bring in the second foundation, Mentalics. I doubt very much whether he intended that when he introduced Rach. Yeah, yeah. Well, he does sort of humanize Harry. Right. I think it's much more likely that Joseph's theory of a, of a kind of a family unit mm -hmm. is much more likely to be, uh, to be what Asimov was doing. Yeah, although actually I, I feel compelled to comment because you know, I don't just talk about foundation with you guys, but I talk about foundation with my friend Jeff. 
Oh. I know. It's oh just shocking, God. right? Um, who is... I feel just, so betrayed somehow. <laughs> who, like, really, really did not like the show. But, um, <laughs> um, but you know, it, 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 uh, to, to channel him for a bit, if, if Rach is supposed to be eminently likable, boy, did the show get him wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, and the show did not bother, by the way, to make him a Dalite. Right. He's extremely tall. Mm-hmm. and not stocky like a dollite yep he has facial hair but he does not have the porn stash the doll porn stash so they didn't bother with any of that you know i think that's probably one of the better choices <laughs> that the show made <laughs> yeah they didn't make him particularly likable it's true and by the way harry and harry continues not to be very likable throughout this story i mean one of the things that i that's just marked about harry in these prequels is that i just don't like him i don't know how you guys feel about him but i don't like him i don't see him as this you know einstein like mental figure who is changing the universe with his thoughts uh yeah i i don't yeah. i just I, I just continue through chapter to chapter to just not buy harry selden as harry selden yeah I mean, there's 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 overt instances in this in this section we just read overt instances of mansplaining that are completely unnecessary and yet well and there he is this this is the harry selden we have we 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 have to you can't get the, the harry <laughs> selden war with the harry selden you have exactly <laughs> <laughs> uh, i wonder how much harry selden we're going to get in the second season of the tv show i mean they've certainly set it up that he's the vault is there right he's in the vault yeah we've got to get more of him right you you could get yeah i mean he could be an extremely regular character as much as they can afford of jared harris that's right well they they don't seem to be lacking for money no and he's not that big a star you know he's 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 okay. Lee Pace has got to be more expensive than Jared Harris. Yeah, I mean, it's not like they hired George Clooney. What I'm, I'm, I'm actually kind of interested in in, in Davin mm-hmm. and that aspect of the story. As I recall, Asimov doesn't really develop that all that much. Do you do you have any recollection of them taking that story much further forward? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, I I think Davin uh, is. He disappears after this uh, episode is over. Um, I think it's sort of he's there for the exposition or for the you know for the dialogue. Of, yeah. uh, what does psycho have to do? Psychohistory have to do with social justice? And now that he's given us this view of the lower classes of Trantor. Mm-hmm. Um, this is our, David is our chance to talk about the meaning of this sector, basically. And then once that conversation is done, then that's all we need. And Harry goes off. Yeah. I mean, later on in For the Foundation, there is a kind of a populist character called Jojo Joranum. Yeah. 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 We could, we could talk about Asanov's naming convention. (laughs) Anyway, uh, and he's a kind of a a populist and at least putatively from Dahl and very popular in Dahl. Yeah. But there's really no mentioned in the jojo jornum section of the story about david and his and david says he has made contact with similar groups in other sectors and asimov is just gonna 
yeah, he's, he's just, he's there as a sort of a cardboard cutout to provide a certain interaction with Harry indoors. And when he's not useful anymore, uh, unfortunately, I think he's just going to. Yeah. And in, in the same way, I mean, if you want the, you want to show the empire decaying in the same way that you need to point at the gravitic lift or whatever that escalator thing was um, and, you know, point out how nobody understands is the science is more abundant. There's going to have to be just any number of popular uprisings or, you know, things that are trying to be popular uprisings that maybe can't get their feet under them. Yeah. Well, to again, to spoil Forward the Foundation, uh, which I seem to do on a regular basis, by the end of Forward the Foundation, Trantor is basically collapsing in on itself. The lights don't work. You know, there's wandering. The streets aren't safe. Um, you know, one of the things I said a lot earlier in a much earlier episode of the podcast is that if you read the prequels before you read Foundation, you will have a very, very different idea of what's going on mm-hmm. than if you just started with Foundation, both because of the development of the Harry story that you get and you find out, you know, when, when, we, when we read Foundation, we don't realize how prominent a figure Harry was in the Empire, mm-hmm. which we get from the prequels, but also uh, when Gail Dornick arrives on Trantor, we are not given the sense of a Trantor in utter decline. It's still shiny and things work and, you know, he yeah. stays in a, in a hotel. He's kind of starstruck like the kid in the big city. Um, but the impression that we get at the end of Forward Foundation is, is, is very, very different. You know, not just mm-hmm. decadent, but decaying and physically decaying. And um, I wonder, I mean, we've yeah. we talked to uh, one of our guests, well, Cora, uh, Cora started with Prelude to Foundation. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I just have to believe that she had a very different impression of the story than, than those of us who started with Foundation and then came to the prequels later. Yeah, maybe, you know, we should think of Gal Dornak as like the, the, the young uh, German visitor to Rome in the fifth century AD. Uh, see, see something that, that is, uh, you know, impressive if you come from a tiny, tiny town uh, in a farming village somewhere, but it's definitely past its glory days. But yeah, I, I think you're right that it is, it would be a very different experience coming, reading the prequels first. Yeah, it, it, is, it is somewhat an interesting experience because over the trilogy, I thought you could really see Asimov's writing and prose and characterizations developing. Here, it almost seems like you can see that he's taking steps backwards. As we said, you know, he was he was getting older. He was, well, I don't think he was sick yet when he wrote Prelude, but he was getting yeah. older. He had some things he wanted to say. He had some things he wanted to get out of the way. I think his motivations were very, very different for writing mm-hmm. the prequels than they had been for writing the actual uh, the actual stories themselves. The, I mean, the originals. Uh, well, you can, you know, we've said that mm-hmm. before. That's nothing new. What else? What else have we got? Um, well, just just to uh, um, throw it out there, because the pre- Prelude to Foundation was 88. Yeah. Um, Asimov and Frederick Pohl wrote a, a book about global warming called Our Angry Earth in 1991. If he wanted to tackle, uh, there's another place where if he'd wanted to tackle global warming, that description of why would have been a perfect place, I think, to insert it. All of the heat that's generated by all of the humans and all of the technology right. and then you had to do something with it otherwise the place would collapse right and it's just sort of mentioned and it's, it's interesting because he came came to that topic just a couple of years later 
Right. And I think he was probably simultaneously writing forward the foundation, um, which I think was posthumously published in 92 or 93. Yeah. I think three of the, I think three of the stories maybe were in Asimov's um, Asimov science fiction magazine. That's possible. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's very hard to get inside his head here and say, what was he thinking when he wrote these things? We, we can speculate, but, but not really know. We need to have a seance. <laughs> but Asimov would come back and tell, tell us we were being ridiculous and stupid and that seances don't work. That's what Asimov's ghost would tell or there's just be the, Or there'd just be no way he'd participate in it. It's like, <laughs> well, you know, there's a story about Harry Houdini and his wife where Houdini's wife was approached several years after his death by a couple of people who said they had the ability to contact Harry and, you know, Houdini was always interested in seances, mm-hmm. even though he was he was a great debunker. He was like the first big debunker. He wanted to talk to his dead mother and he kept going to these spiritualists and realizing that they were all charlatans. And so then he got together with Scientific American magazine and was a great debunker of these things. But after he died, his wife was approached by these people and they, they contact, they did a seance and Harry, the ghost of Harry apparently knew things that um, he couldn't have known that there were these codes and things that he had set up. But as it turned out, he had published a book towards the end of his life in which all of this stuff was, was written, although she had forgotten it because she was getting older. And I believe it was she who said before she died, look, um, if anyone ever does a seance and contacts me, let me tell you right now, I will not talk to anyone when I'm a ghost. So if anyone is out there saying it's me, it's not me, it's a fraud, because I will not participate in any of these things posthumously. So just kind of your story reminded me of that. You know, that's really irresponsible because like, maybe, you know, you don't know what you're going to feel like when you're a ghost. I mean, maybe you'll change your mind about things. I, I like, I, I, I personally, I don't think I'll be coming back to any seances, but, uh, yeah, you man. know, if, if the afterlife is just incredibly boring, you know, maybe visiting a seance, that'd be a, like a kind of a day out, you know? Yeah. Cause be actually fun. you, you, you just completely changed my opinion. Cause my, 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 what I was thinking until you just said that was that there is no way that Asimov as a ghost would participate in one of these things because he's saying, you know, um, <laughs> you know, participating in a seance would completely undermine my entire life's work. But now I think he would absolutely do it for just, <laughs> just because he liked to, to, to talk to people and he loved the attention. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Asimov would just come back for the attention. That's right. <laughs> he, would, he would pinch some woman's ass, you know, <laughs> just, just one more time. <laughs> well, Dan, anything else you want to cover before we wrap this no i think i i think i've said my piece on this one yeah i think i'm all all set too well i will i will remind everyone about my my lovely story it's very quick read it give me some feedback positive feedback (laughs) and uh, next time we i guess we are going to get to the end of prelude to foundation we're going to go all the way to the to the end uh we are going to meet the people in why why are we going to meet them because they live in Y. And we're going to get all the way to the end and with the last conversations with Cheddar Hummin and, and Doors and, and secrets will be revealed and the book will reach its its conclusion. So we have that to look forward to. 
one very quick comment. When 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 Harry and Doors were talking about why, they got really close to trying to do who's on first. They did. <laughs> I'm hoping there's more of that. You know, honestly, we've got a promise slash warn our listeners that on our next episode, there's just going to be a ton of bad boy jokes. There, there have to be. If you guys don't bring in, I'll I'll have a basket full of them. We'll count. We're counting on you, Dan. For a basket full of white jokes. All right. Well, we look forward to it. And Dan, I hope by then your COVID will, will have gone on to greener pastures. Thank you very much. All right. It's a good night. Well, that brings this week's episode to a close. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe and give us a like and a positive review on your favorite platform. You can also visit our website at starsendpodcast.wordpress.com, where there's always additional content. Our music, used by a Creative Commons license, is It Is Coming by Alex Mason. Also, follow us on Twitter, at Stars End Podcast. Goodbye for now from the galactic capital of Trantor. This is where the stars end.